This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi there, this is Martina Navratilova. Uh, hi, I'm Mats Vilander. Hi, I'm Andy Murray, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport from a rather damp and drizzly Roland Garros on day seven. It wasn't always damp and drizzly, but it was always a little bit damp and a bit grey and overcast and cool today. But the rain came in at around about 4 or 5pm and uh, cool play was called off a couple of hours after that. And I am now stood in interview room three wearing a freebie Eurosport branded Packamac, proving that television really is all glamour, standing alongside the Telegraph's tennis correspondent, Simon Briggs. Simon, how's your day been? I'm just thinking that I'm actually wearing clothes that I've paid for, which is extremely <laughs> unusual for me. I'm known for being the freebie king, going around wearing those Roland Garros t-shirts they used to give us. The Eurosport are hand, handing out Packamacs like sweets, so if you want one of these numbers, oh. of which there is a picture, I think, posted on our social media, trust me, you don't want one of these numbers. Oh, I, I always want free clothes, it doesn't matter how bad they are. I have right. no pride. Okay, big big words. We, you might yet see a tennis podcast recorded exclusively by people in Eurosport Packamax. Uh, in terms of the tennis, Simon, before the rain and the weather intervened, we've seen Andy Murray playing a little bit more like the world number one today, haven't we? Yeah, it was another fascinating match. Andy Murray on clay, just, it seems to be uh, it's a bit of a brain teaser every time and there's plenty to talk about. And that was a, uh, a remarkable first set. 83 minutes for the first set between Del Potro and Murray. Seven which, which you commentated on for BBC Five Live and predicted before the match that it would be an 85-minute first set. Is that right? No, I mean, I predicted that at about sort of four all or something when it was about sort of 54 minutes. That's still not bad, Simon. Take the credit. <laughs> yeah, well, I just had a funny feeling that they were, they were both sort of throwing away guilt-edged opportunities. And you thought... They're just kind of freaking out because they're remembering all that pain and suffering that they, they went through playing four hours in Rio, then five hours in Glasgow, and knowing that this first set is just massive because, you know, the, 
if Murray had lost it, he probably would have been able to to regroup. For Delpo, it was all too much, and he did this extraordinary thing that no one had ever seen before of hanging on the net for 45 seconds. I think we timed him at the end of the first set with his head down. He wouldn't necessarily recommend it uh, on a body language uh, course. It was totally giving Murray every encouragement that he could possibly have wanted and telling him that basically you've done the job now, mate, just finish it off. Having said that, it was uh, it was refreshingly honest anyway. It was. He'd gone up to the net because he was querying the backhand down the line, which was called out. And it was very, very close. Carlos Bernardes came down from the chair. He actually sought guidance from the line judge who'd called it to get make sure he got the correct mark. I'm sure he'd been watching what happened in Monte Carlo with Goffin and Nadal. You've got to get the right mark in those moments. It was it was confirmed to be out. Uh, and Juan Martín de Pocho just slumped over the net, didn't he? And as you say, stayed there for a long period of time. The, the camera held held there while he was doing it. And I was watching the Eurosport coverage and sort of after a while they had no choice but to go to a break. It looked like he might just <laughs> stay there indefinitely and the ad break would never be slotted in. It was quite a bizarre moment. And Andy sort of admitted in press, didn't he, that he was asked directly, did you sort of smell the weakness there did you smell blood and look to finish off the kill afterwards and he sort of in as many words said yes I did yeah he still had some work to do he was a break up in the second uh lost it when he served for it and then then won the next two games so he didn't have to go through another tie break but then the in the third set he won every game and finished on a run of eight successive games as he did against Kuznetsov, and yeah, he was pretty pleased with himself. I mean, we've been saying all week, where where is the match which is going to ignite Murray? I felt that Klaizam was a big match for him, perhaps bigger than this one. Um, but symbolically, this is his biggest win of the year, and he certainly sounded the most positive that we've heard him. And he didn't like it when I asked him about um, shushing himself either, did he? He didn't like that at all, Sam. You're a braver man than me. <laughs> well, we, we've just been uh, you know, following his kind of more wild-haired moments all all week, all, all month on the clay. And today he just had a new development because in, he did bark quite uh, furiously late in the first set at his player's box. But otherwise he kept on saying shh, shh, and sometimes even putting a, a finger over his own lips to tell himself that he wasn't going to start doing that stuff. Plenty of players have done that sort of thing. Nick Kyrgios does it a bit to the crowd, doesn't he? When they're booing him or whatever, depending on what his antics are. But a player shushing themselves, I think it's perfectly valid. to. It's bizarre enough behaviour that it's valid to ask about it, Simon. Consider yourself vindicated. Um, yes, I completely agree with you that he was... He seemed to be buzzing after that match to me. Obviously, he had come down considerably by the time he came into press, but I did have the opportunity to speak to him on the court in the immediate aftermath for Eurosport, and this is what he had to say, confirming that, yes, he does think it is the biggest match, the biggest performance of his clay court season so far. Yeah, I think so. I mean, at times in the second and third set, I felt like I played some really good tennis. First set was a little bit patchy. I think he probably deserved to, to nick the first set. Um, second and third sets, I felt like I started to play better, dictating more of the points and getting a better uh, look on, on the return games. And it was, uh, it was a good performance in the end. Might sound ruthless, but you're expert at exploiting an opponent's weaknesses. For Delpo, that's the backhand and it's the movement. Was that the plan today? Yeah, well, I think um, on the hard courts, I think he... He hasn't played much on clay the last few years and the one thing that I've always found when I've struggled on clay is, or haven't played on it for a while is the, is the movement and 
you know, on the hard courts when he's moving out to his forehand side, he's so dangerous on, on the run, on the clay when you're a little bit unstable on your, your feet, um, you know, and it's a bit slippy out there, it's tougher. So I was trying to open up the court to the backhand, get him moving into the forehand side. and. It wasn't working at the beginning. I wasn't getting enough on my shots, but when I did start getting a better hit, um, it worked really well. Your last two matches before this were absolute epics, four and five hours during that 85-minute first set. Were you starting to have flashbacks of the Olympics and the Davis Cup? Yeah, and also, I mean, in these conditions, it's very difficult to finish the points quickly. It's very heavy um, out here today, much slower than it has been. So, yeah, I mean, had I gone behind in that first set, it would have been, uh, would have been tough, but... Um, yeah, I uh, kept going, stayed on, on top when, uh, you know, when I got the chances and thankfully finished it in straight sets, but it, it was looking like it was going to be a long one at the beginning. We're very glad, glad you did, Andy, well done. Thank you. So that was Andy Murray speaking to me directly after that pretty convincing victory over Juan Martin Del Potro. I was struck in that interview, Simon. It seemed like, you know, when you do something that you're really proud of, or you think is really great and you just want to talk to someone about it straight away. It was almost, I couldn't stop him talking. Usually in those <laughs> interviews, you, they want to get straight off the court. You know, he had, had the bag on his back, which is always a sign that this isn't going to last long. But he was just brimful of energy and things to say about that match and that for me is a very good sign well clearly it's all the sweeter when you come in under such a cloud as he had and I'm sure that he used you know all those questioning articles and and doubtful prognostications to is that a word uh, word, to to fuel his own uh, turnaround to make himself more dialed in in his practice sessions and there's a sense of a guy who's timing his charge at the right moment. I was looking at the stats as, actually as well. He's um, he's looking like he's had like twenty percent more winners and unforced, which is not that far out of line, even with Nadal actually, and uh, not far out of line with uh, Vavrinka. Novak's way down on the, on those measures. Not that you can read too much into it. Murray spent longest on court out of the four of the top seeds, but uh, nothing new there. Yeah, nine hours for three matches, probably still only the same as what what the first two matches would have taken last year. Exactly, he's still down in terms of his tally on last year. I asked him about that actually and asked him to compare how he was feeling at this point to the same point last year and he was a bit fuzzy on it but he basically said, yeah, I'm feeling physically better form-wise and mentally might be a different story but physically he's feeling better I also asked him I got the impression in the press conference that he had very much adjusted his expectations upwards he admitted that he had lowered them coming into the tournament than he usually would have at a grand slam because he was struggling so badly and he was starting to talk he used the word final and winning it and I think Mm -hmm. he's I think he'd put all of those thoughts out of his mind a week ago. And I'm not saying he's thinking to himself, yeah, I'm going to win this thing. But I think he's allowing himself to think in terms of it being possible now. Yeah, and you look at his draw and it's either Isner or Kachanov in the fourth round. They didn't finish because of the rain. Kachanov was a set-up. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you'd fancy him against either of those. And then the potential quarterfinal, should he go that far? Vadasco making a strong bid because um, who did Vadasco destroy today? Cuevas. Cuevas, Pablo Cuevas, and he's been in great form this year. Exactly. So, I mean, that was a, uh, he dropped, what, six games? So that was a statement from Vadasco. Um, but, yeah, Murray's got a very strong record against him too. And then you're thinking, can he get to the semis against Stan, which is what he did here last year. 
It, it's, uh, he said in the press conference he'd come in just trying to win um, each match and hope that he would find something, and clearly he has. And speaking of Stan, we won't go into it in too much detail because neither of us were able to watch the match in any detail at all, really, because we were focused on what was happening on Chatray between Murray and Del Potro. But Stan Wawrinka had a pretty similar match to Murray against Del Potro. He was in trouble in the first set. Actually, Fabio Fanini served for it. Stan came back, won the set, and then cantered to the next two sets, probably even more so, perhaps not the six-love set that Murray had uh, in the third. But Stan, by all accounts, from what I've read, was in pretty dazzling form. And that's pretty good going for him in the first week of Assam. Usually he's very sluggish, struggles his way through, and then peaks in the second week but he's looked great first week so I don't know what that means I don't know whether that means he's peaked too soon and he's going to be mm-hmm. rubbish next week or whether it means that this is an even more fearsome Stan Wawrinka than we've seen in the past but anyway he seems to be uh, in great form at the moment somebody else that was in fearsome form and I did watch a bit of this because the winner could have potentially played Carl Edmund alas we will talk about that in a moment Simon but Marin Cilic uh, I think is in some great form. I'm not saying he's going to win a clay court grand slam, but he is really feeling bullish about his chances of going deep here. I spoke to him after the match in anticipation of him playing Kyle Edmund. He was two sets to one up Kyle at the time. So we did a quick interview with Marin Cilic uh, to preview that potential fourth round. And he said, this is so by far the best I've ever played on clay. He was really bullish about how he was playing. I was, I was impressed with him. But he will play Kevin Anderson in the fourth round because Kevin Anderson was the five-set victor over poor Kyle Edmund today. What did he make of that one? Well, Kyle Edmund didn't seem too disheartened. I mean, the point was that it was three hours, 59 minutes, and he was strong at the end. And that's, uh, in itself, the most encouraging day of his year in some ways. He's really had a physical problem uh, going deep in in five-set matches in the past. And that was the longest match he's ever played today against Anderson? By a long way. I I think it's three hours 12 was his previous one against Damir Zumer which he, he lost 6-1 in the fifth in Australia last year. Um, so he, he he seemed pretty chipper, and I would be too if I was him, because Kyle really knows about building blocks. I mean, I actually wrote in my piece. The, when the first thing I ever heard about Kyle was when he was at National Tennis Centre, which I think was then actually at Bisham Abbey, uh, before it got moved to uh, Roehampton. They used to notice that he'd go into a training block and he'd lose matches because everyone loses matches when they're knackered. And he wouldn't care about it because he knew that he was concentrating on the training block, whereas his, his peers would get freaked out. He had this ability to work out what he needed to do next all the time. And he's piloted his way through, through his career in that same way. And he's going to be looking at that and thinking, Anderson played fantastically well. I looked at Anderson's stats in that fourth set, 12 winners, one unforced, um, when he, when he got, got the fourth set, 6-1, and retook the momentum. And Anderson's a, a former top 10 player. I mean, he only made top 10, so he's on the edge yeah, of it. Yeah, but in real terms, he's pretty much a top 20 player, isn't he? But take away the injuries that he's experienced and the fact that he's on the comeback trail, he's really top 20, top 25, isn't he? So I don't think anyone's really going to be crying over Kyle's results. That people are going to be thinking this is another step towards what he's trying to deliver, which is a top 20 career, perhaps maybe like Anderson, the odd moment in the top 10. Yeah, I mean, they're not sexy, are they, the quotes that come out of a Kyle Edmund press conference? They're not. I mean, words like building blocks and taking the positives and momentum and growing and stuff, they, they don't make for scintillating reading, but they do make for a very good tennis player, a tennis player that's going to maximise their potential. You do it, it, 
to what you want to see from him that somebody for, as somebody that wants him to succeed but as somebody that just in that moment wants you know a great interview somebody going oh it's gutted to lose today it's not the best is it but I, I do believe that in the wider scheme of things, that attitude will absolutely benefit Kyle Edmund. So Marin Cilic up against Kevin Anderson in round four. I'm not sure that's going to be a Philippe Chatrier match, <laughs> if you get what I'm saying. I'm not sure that is going to be the most watchable of clay court matches. It's not going to be Nadal against Djokovic semi-final 20, when was it, 2013, 2012? The one that went on before Songa and then Songa came out all flat, Songa Ferrer. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. was that, 2012, 2013? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't think it's going to be that, but good luck to both of them. Just a quick look um, at the women's side of things before I let you go, Simon. Simona Halep negotiated a very... Uh, tricky or potentially tricky clash with Daria Kazakina today. Seven five six love or the other way around. Six love, six love seven, seven five. five. Uh, again, didn't get a chance to watch much of it because it was over on Longland. But that to me looks like a very impressive scoreline. What I did see on the women's side of things. What did I see earlier? Well, Elise Corne. That's what I saw winning through very handily against Agnieszka Radvanska. I'm not sure what Radvanska is. What her game plan is on clay she looks like she's just given up really she looks like oh this isn't my thing move on rather than giving it a go but Corne played a very good it was a highly entertaining match despite the very one-sided scoreline and she Corne will now play Caroline Garcia who's into the fourth round of a slam for the first time nobody was picking her to do anything coming in here because she has historically crumbled under the pressure of playing in front of the French crowd and she's she's not alone there amongst French players but there's quite a lot of beef between these two I don't think they like one another at all there have been some pretty spicy quotes coming out of both of their press conferences and I think Simon it all stems from Garcia's decision to walk away from the Fed Cup team to exempt herself from selection. I know she's there's some beef between her and Mladenovic because they were a, a doubles partnership and I don't think Garcia handled the, the breakup of that doubles partnership brilliantly. I think it's fair to say overall that Garcia has not enamoured herself with the other French players or French public. Do you think that's correct? Yeah, whether it all starts with that is an interesting question because... My my sort of understanding of, of the French women is that Garcia doesn't seem to be as provocative as Cornet, who is constantly getting herself in controversy. Um, nor do I think Garcia is as provocative as Mladenovic, who perhaps is is less of a wild card on the court, but is prone to saying some quite... Um, She's pretty outspoken, isn't she? Yeah. She's articulate with it too, so people really sit up and take notice. And people are beginning to interview Mladenovic just because they think she's going to say something pretty wild. Um, so whether it all starts with the Fed Cup um, withdrawal from Garcia, I, I don't know. It's clearly you know the, the latest um, sort of spur for their disagreements. But uh, yeah, the French women, they certainly do know how to do falling outs in, in spectacular fashion. Um, and that's going to be fascinating match to watch. I mean, also, I think they're both, all three of them indeed, are pretty damn good to watch. They had that classic sort of French um, repertoire of, of being able to do a lot of different things. Um, Garcia is, is proper uh, kick serve, which you don't see from many people outside of Sam Stoza and Sarah Arani. And Corne is... Uh, 
Yeah, she's just um, an agent provocateur, I suppose. That's, that's, that's the phrase I'm looking for. It's very good of them all to give the French press here something to write about, isn't it? I mean, they, they, they are, I'm sure, still typing away because, yeah, the quotes coming out of all of their press conferences are very interesting indeed. Just a quick look ahead to tomorrow, Simon. Uh, we don't have an order of play yet. The rain has rather scuppered us. In fact, now that I've mentioned rain, before we talk about the order of play, I should probably bring you some words from Mats Valand because there is one good thing about the rain other than my freebie Eurosport poncho. And that is that I was called upon to fill rather a lot of time of Eurosport rainy airtime with Mats Valander earlier. And uh, with I was given the brief that I could talk about whatever I liked with Mats. So we just talked about tennis for ages on the the telly I, I couldn't believe my luck and he was interesting on all sorts of topics uh, and this is what we talked about finally we're seeing the real Andy Murray aren't we he was great today yeah he was uh, I, I thought I, I saw most of it but I thought he played a few points in the tiebreaker that was really impressive he served and volleyed a couple of times two points in a row actually in a tiebreaker uh, and you don't want to lose the first set against Juan Monte del Potro because he likes to be the front runner so so what seemed to be risky to Andy Murray was a very safe play. It was something that he had decided, and, uh, and in the end, it worked out. So winning the first set, I didn't think was going to be that important, but it seemed to Del Potro that it was really important for him to win the first set. Yeah, an 85-minute first set. He told me after the match that he was starting to have horrible flashbacks of the matches yeah. he played with him at Davis Cup and, of course, at the Olympics. He did not want to be out there for five hours today, did he? No, he didn't, but it's amazing how that matchup works because Andy Murray, obviously, he loves to defend. Uh, sometimes he, he might be a little bit too passive against certain players, but very few players can hang with Del Potro allowing Del Potro to sort of dictate and Murray just seems like that's his world and then he throws in these sort of weird tactical changes like serving and volleying or the drop shot here and there so uh, a brilliant match I thought already against Martin Kleesan we were sitting there I thought that something after that first set something started to click for Murray uh, and uh, right now I think that the confidence that he has lost over the last few months I think it's not that big a worry anymore yeah I've just come from the uh, Andy Murray press conference actually and sometimes being in those is, is a matter of reading between the lines and what I read between the lines was that he's starting to very much revise his expectations upwards of what he can achieve at this tournament he came in trying to lower the pre expectations, trying to lower the pressure on himself and now he's starting to think, hang on a second I've just beaten Juan Martín del Potro for the first time in three sets, maybe maybe I could win it here Yeah and I think once a player starts thinking like that, you know that the whole locker room has already started to, to think like that if they ever thought that Andy Murray had lost his confidence, but, but yeah, the fact that he's saying that and the fact that you can see it in his decision making on the court and the fact that he goes through this match and wins 6-love in the third Okay, Del Potro went away, but it doesn't matter. It's just such a, a good feeling, and, and you get so much strength from it. So I say that uh, Andy Murray, watch out for Andy Murray. He doesn't mind his rain, does he? Because he is most probably used to it, just like all you Brits are. Just makes us all feel so at home. Now, while Andy Murray was on court, we had over on Longland, Stan Wawrinka once again sneaking through the door here. He's a former champion. How is he able to fly so far under the radar? He was extraordinary today against Fabio Fanini. Oh, we're nearly taking off here, Catherine. Uh, well, I, you know, I think that the, the talking points here has been the, um, 
the lack of motivation from Novak Djokovic, the lack of motivation from Andy Murray, Angelique Kerber a little bit, and of course Rafael Nadal uh, is playing so unbelievably well. I'm sure the Swiss newspapers and that we're talking about Roger Federer not being here. So I think it's a natural thing that Vavrinka is flying under the radar. But I think once he gets to the second week, he's not going to be flying under the radar anymore. And he doesn't mind if it's this kind of weather where he can't play in the rain. He doesn't mind the heavy courts. He doesn't mind when it's fast and fiery. So uh, he is getting better and better and better and so is Andy Murray and so is Novak Djokovic. Well exactly, you actually caught up with Andre Agassi earlier on today, great privilege for you I know that's an interview that will hopefully be playing at some point in Eurosport so I don't want to scoop it but can you just give us the inside track on what he said? Yeah, the inside track um, is basically uh, to try and get Novak to to understand why he's playing, what the, what the reasons are for being out in the court, um, take his opponent on. You know, that's, that's, why, that's where we're good. That's where great champions are good. Everybody can play when they're behind. Everybody can play, most players, when they're winning. they got some confidence. But it's that battle that you have to enjoy when it's 0-0. And you see Rafa Nadal come on the court. He is like a lion or a bull. He wants the confrontation. And uh, I think Andre Agassi, he talked a little bit about... The fact that he kind of lost it a little bit, but Brad Gilbert helped him sort of understand that tennis is not about just hitting, it's about the other person and the, about the battle and the confrontation. And so I think uh, it sounds to me like Andre is trying to, to just get into Novak's head a little bit and, and have a conversation about what makes it fun to play tennis. And he also said, because it's not winning. And it certainly isn't losing. It's being in the present and just playing the guy that's in front of you. That's really what tennis is about. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because over the past six months or so, the story of the tennis season has been about Rafa Nadal and uh, Roger Federer and their resurgence. And one of the things that strikes me about them is how much they love tennis, in particular Roger Federer. He can love tennis even when he's not winning, whereas Novak Djokovic, over the past few months, he seems to have been not able to enjoy tennis unless he's winning. He loves winning, but he doesn't necessarily love tennis at the moment in the way that Roger Federer does. Do you think that is at the crux of what Agassi is going to try to instill in him? I think so. I absolutely think so. And, and I think that there were times when Rafa Nadal didn't look like he loved tennis, maybe a couple of years ago when he lost to Novak Djokovic here. Um, I don't know why Roger Federer didn't win a major for the last five years until the Australian Open this year. I think that the difference, the biggest difference between Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer and Novak and Andy is that they are much better at bluffing and they're poker players. And it's really difficult to tell if Rafa or Roger are not enjoying themselves or are not fighting at 100% are not choking and are not flat. Whereas with Murray and Djokovic, you have this feeling that you can tell they wear their emotions on their sleeve. And I think the players eat that up. Their opponents eat it up. I think we in the media, we sort of look, oh, look, he's flat or he's this or whatever. And Roger and Rafa are so good at that. At the same time as you're 100% correct, they love tennis more than anything, I think, Rafa and Roger. And uh, the confrontation is fine every day, all day, no problem. And he's found himself a coach now whose autobiography started off with the words, I hate tennis, I hate it, I hate it with a burning passion. He had to find a way to try and fall in love with tennis. So he's the perfect guy. Oh, it's perfect. And he won. And I asked him about that, actually, because he won the career Grand Slam here in Paris in 19- 
1999, coming back from two sets to love down. Same year, he and Steffi got together. Big year yeah, for Andre Agassi. Could that have something to do with the inspiration that he told me he found? When he won the career Grand Slam, he found a new inspiration. And then, of course, he won four more majors into his 30s. It sounds like Novak Djokovic is trying to imitate the career that Andre Agassi had because Djokovic is in the same situation right now and he's missing some of the motivation and I think Andre is absolutely the perfect person for Novak. And he seems to be absolutely loving it as well, doesn't he? Considering everybody thought it was completely out of the question that Andre would take a coaching role in tennis. You know, he's really taken a back seat from tennis since he retired. We haven't seen much of him. Everybody thought he and Pete Sampras, no, there's no way they'll ever want to be on the tour again. Do you think that Pete Sampras is looking at what Agassi is doing with Djokovic and thinking, hang on a second, I might like to have a little go at that? <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully, because surely Pete Sampras would be uh, most probably a great coach. He could, share, he could share his stories. I think he has to find somebody who plays a similar game to him. How about Nick Curious, for example? Um, so, yes, it would be good. The one thing that, that Andre said that really sort of stayed with me is, you got to love what you do. That's, that, everybody says that. And you got to love what you do. There is something in life that you love to do. And in most tennis players' case, it's playing tennis. It's that confrontation. And when you don't love it anymore, it's normal. Because I, you know, I was flat when I was number one in the world. John McEnroe suffered from it. Pete Sampras quit at 31, was flat a few years before. So, and he said, not everybody comes out of it. Some people find something else that they're in love with. Could be your family, could be golf for Pete Sampras. But you gotta sort of naturally do what you love to do. And not everybody's able to get back because they don't have that love. So I think that's what he's trying to get Novak Djokovic to think about, um, to find, help him find, and, um, and help him with, you know, tactics and, and whatever. And what we love to do, Mats, is standing in the rain talking about oh, tennis. Oh, so I love it. Isn't it good? <laughs> one more question while I've got you. And it's a pretty tricky one because obviously we've got one heavy standout favourite in the men's draw this year in the form of Rafael Nadal, losing just one game yesterday, one game that you thought he actually gave away to Nicolas Bachelashvili, and who am I to argue with you? Are there any dark horses that you've seen over the course of the last week that you think could do some damage, trouble a top seed, maybe even get to the semis or final? I think that um, if you can call Dominic Team a dark horse, I think he is a dark horse. Um, I think that Karen Kachanov, a Russian who beat Thomas Burdick in, in three straight sets. A possible next opponent of Andy Murray, we, could, we should say he's been called off because of these conditions, because of the rain. He led a set to love over John Isner, so it's a very good shout. Yeah, I don't know if these guys can win the tournament. I think Dominic Team could potentially win the tournament, but, but there is a lot of guys out there that can beat the top players, that can even beat Rafa Nadal. Uh, yes, there is. Stan Bavrinka can beat Rafa Nadal. If, there, if it's a day like this when it's heavy, Novak Djokovic could potentially do that too. So I think that Rafa is not looking necessarily at winning yet and I think the other guys know that he's the favorite uh, and they're afraid of him that's for sure but the longer the tournament goes the bigger the chance is that the other guys have more confidence than uh, than they had going into the tournament and especially as long as this rain goes on Rafa Nadal poor thing it's his birthday today it's his 31st birthday he won't be enjoying seeing this weather out of the window he'll be doing some sort of rain dance to make sure it clears up as soon as possible because he likes the sun doesn't well, he I think he's doing a rain dance because uh, Real Madrid is playing against Juventus and he is not going outside today. Yeah, but football players, they're hardier than tennis <laughs> players, Matt. They will play through all of it. Thank it's you true. so much for keeping Thank me company, you. holding the umbrella up for me. And uh, yeah, talking tennis with me in the rain, Matt. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tiebreak or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with Legends of the Game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. So that's Mats Verlander. Interesting, as always, even in the rain. Very good of him to hold an umbrella over me throughout the duration of that interview. What I wanted to pick up on is what he was saying about his interview with Andre Agassi that he did earlier. I haven't seen the full interview. It's embargoed, but he did uh, leak us some of the highlights there. And what I'm particularly interested in, Simon, is uh, the fact that he said that he thinks Novak Djokovic is going to dominate tennis again as a result of his discussion his interview with Andre Agassi that he did earlier he became convinced not that Djokovic would win grand slams again because I think there's a lot of feeling that Djokovic will win slams he said he heard enough to be convinced that Djokovic will dominate tennis again Simon Briggs everyone has eyebrows raised as high as they can go yeah I guess because Djokovic hasn't turned a corner this week, has he? Um, but I'm not privy to the interview, so whatever devastating... I have to say, he didn't say it that strongly in the interview. He sort of said it afterwards. It, it, I mean, he, he came actually spoke to him just after he came back from that interview, and he's really buzzing from it. He said he... he I mean, he's, he's just generally buzzing about tennis, isn't he? He just loves it so much. But he was really won over by what Agassi had to say about their partnership, and he really... I don't know, it's like Agassi performed some kind of hypnosis on him. He suddenly (laughs) just, he was completely convinced about what Agassi could do for Djokovic. Yeah, I guess Mats and uh, Andre probably have a a language that they they might have some concepts in common. 
the uh, sort of spiritual side of, of the game being quite close to their hearts now? I, I mean, I, I genuinely don't know. I, do, I don't. I don't know Andre at all. I, I, my guess is the fact that he's got on board with the the Pepe Imaz situation suggests that he would have to be. Or, or do well, you think he's not necessarily on board well, with that? Well, because I haven't seen this interview, but I did see the uh, the L'Equipe piece. They did about three pages on an Andre interview, which I felt a bit jealous about because I, I wasn't given an invitation to talk to him. And I don't. Um, know, I don't know what what the criteria are for being invited to speak to Andre Agassi. I wasn't invited either, Simon, if that makes you feel better. Well, I've got a Carlos Moyer interview in, in tomorrow's Sunday Telegraph. Um, so that's I'm holding on to that. To, to, to... He's been pretty punchy, actually, this week on Rafael Nadal. I, made, I imagine he gave you some, some good stuff, actually. Yeah, I mean, we just talked about uh, the technical improvements they've made. And, and he said, yeah, he certainly feels that he's playing top ball but then that's not really in 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 any doubt is it after after the way he steamrolled through the first well, week you say that but again i'm sorry to hit you with all these things that Mats verlander said to me in an interview you haven't heard but Mats thinks he's beatable he thinks he's beatable by stan vavrinka crucially yeah i mean if novak beat rafa i would be absolutely stunned wouldn't you this week? I, I would Froome mcmillan said he thought it was possible in yesterday's podcast and look who am I to disagree with Drew McMillan? But I've not heard anybody else saying that. I asked him whether he thought Novak would have been quaking in his boots having watched any, if he had seen any of Nadal's performance in the locker room yesterday, because obviously he was coming out straight afterwards. And Frew said, Frew said no, that their recent head-to-head would sort of override that in his mind and give him a confidence that couldn't be counteracted by any one brutal performance as it was from Nadal yesterday. But anyway, we digress. I can't even remember what I asked you. Have you any? Have you anything else to say about tennis, Simon? <laughs> uh, well, I'm just going to do to uh, reference my one moment of, of, of predictive inspiration today that, that that we did the graphic on the Andy Murray drop shot in the Telegraph, and and he murdered uh, Delpo with it. Is this a graphic that translates on a podcast in audio form? Can you explain it? Well, we just had, um, he, he, he's hitting the backhand drop shot from his own backhand corner and he's hitting it up the line and he hasn't missed one in the entire tournament. So he's not won every single point because occasionally they go a little bit too, too close to the service line and sometimes the player's on top of it. But his backhand drop shot up the line from his own backhand corner has not missed once the entire tournament. And what conclusions do we draw from that? Well, that it's a re- regular supply of points, you know, because he's, he's got like a 65% winning percentage on it, which is big. And he used it today when he was in trouble. He used it in the first set tiebreak, I think on the penultimate point. And it was just a, a massive factor for, for breaking up the sort of um, the punching baseline showdown in which he was n- never going to be able to match Delpo's unbelievable velocity off the forehand side. I hate Brad Gilbert wasn't watching. Do you remember how much Brad Gilbert used to hate Murray doing all his drop shotting? But hasn't that been a massive factor in his mastery of clay in the last three years? And maybe we give Amelie Moresmo some credit for that because uh, she's one of those sort of touch variety players. It does feel like he's dropped better since he was working with her. Whether it was her who actually helped him with it, I don't know. It might just have been an attitude thing. The clay court sequence actually really began with um, Jonas Bjorkman in Munich. So goodness knows who... who um, had input into it anyway. I mean, Alex Correccio could have, I'm sure, have had yeah. some input as well. I mean, he's he's had plenty of people giving him input over the years, hasn't he? But it, the drop shot's gone from being a liability in the Brad Gilbert days to being a huge asset in the last two, three years. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, audio diagram of a visual metric of drop shotting. I think it was pretty. I think it was pretty well explained, actually, Simon. Thank you very much. If you want to see the real life visual thing, check it out in the Telegraph. <laughs> And on Simon's Twitter. Wow, it's everywhere, Simon. Wow. He really is pleased with this. He's like Andy Murray in his post-match interview with me. This is this is his Juan Martín Del Potro moment. So do check it out, please. Uh, and do check out that Carlos Moyer interview in The Telegraph tomorrow as well. Do watch the Eurosport coverage. We promise no rain tomorrow, uh, simply because I don't ever want to have to wear this Packamac again. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you're enjoying these daily French Open podcasts. We'll be back with you tomorrow with another French Open podcast brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 